All right, well, good morning. I've got some new information for you. It goes like this. You can be in the middle of a miracle. Can you finish it for me? And not know it. God is a miracle-working God. And if you're not seeing His miracles, if you're not experiencing His miracles, then get on some praying ground and begin to ask God to do that which He specializes in, and that is He gets involved in your life. He wants to be involved. He wants to display His glory in your presence. And He wants you to walk in His atmosphere, the presence of God Himself. Second part of this wilderness journey report is this one. The wilderness clarifies the supernatural. One thing you notice when, they, when Israel's going through this, uh, this land and on this exodus journey is it seems like there's a great backdrop of the miraculous because of the difficulties they find themselves in. You see, something happens when I get ourselves in a position where God has to come through. But guess what? You can be in His presence and you can have a hunger for God, a thirst for God, even when everything is going well. And that's when you really start to enjoy the presence of God. You know, I thought the other day, I thought of this. I am greedy, God. I am greedy for your presence. I want to be in your presence, God. I want to have that kind of an appetite that I say like the psalmist, as the, as the deer pants after the water brook, so pants my soul after thee, O God, the living God. When shall I stand before your face? My tears have been my only food both day and night. That's the kind of hunger God wants us to have. On this wilderness journey, you'll notice that the journey is precious. Don't waste a single day on the journey of life. Because God wants to take every day and do something special. We don't have any promise of tomorrow, right? We have today. What are you doing with your today? As we've said the goal is not a building. And if you think the destination is Mervyn's or some other great, big, colossal building, we sent the wrong message. That's not the message. The message is that we are on a pursuit for the very presence of God Himself. And that's daily. Daily. If we find ourselves in a wonderful building and everybody kind of sits back and says, well, boy, we're sure glad the journey's over, then we fail. We failed miserably. We're talking about the Ten Commandments. We've been in this journey through the, through the Exodus, and you know that Israel took 40 years to get this story told. We hope to tell a little bit quicker, but at the rate I'm going, it's going to take about 40 years to get through. But we're on the Ten Commandments, and now we come to this one. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You ever done that? Let's have a little honesty. Anybody ever looked at somebody else's house and go, I wish I lived there? Okay, let's just hear you say it. I wish I lived there. Oh, good. At least we know we got people that need this commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor covet your neighbor's wife. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on that one. nor his male servant or his female servant. Well, we don't really have slaves anymore, so we'll just go ahead and assume that you're not doing that. How about his ox? 
Modern would say his new car. Any, anybody ever seen a new car in the neighbor's parking lot or in his driveway and you go, I got to get me one of those. Or you do the opposite and you say, you know what? I don't want that car, but I don't want him to have it either. <laughs> if I can't have it, he can't have it, right? And then just in case we didn't hit the right category, look what it says. Nor anything that is your neighbor's. That's everything. You know, I don't know about you, but I look at that and I think, that seems a little unfair, God. I mean, why would you not want us to have somebody else's stuff? It's because what it does to us. It kills you on the inside. It step by step, member by member, dismantles the very image of God that you were created in. It causes you to pursue the wrong thing. Instead of pursuing God, you're pursuing stuff. And you see, it's really, it's not so much the stuff that's the issue. It's the attitude behind the stuff that leads to the action. And God always goes back to our attitude. It's interesting, I was uh, reading uh, on the, in the Jerusalem Post, and there was an article there posted by a law professor in Israel. And it caught my attention because the headline started with this picture of Moses and the Ten Commandments. I thought, oh, this is going to be good. And I, and I started reading it, and it didn't take me long to figure out that this guy doesn't believe in the miraculous anymore. Let me just read a couple of excerpts from this article called The Allure of Miracles. And this bothered, this opening statement bothered the writer. He said, facts show that increasing number of Israelis believe in miracle workers whether religious, spiritual, political, or ideological. And that bothered him. He said the ethos of miracles thrives within our national subconscious. As we face the threat of Iran, and by the way, have you watched what's been happening lately? Not only do we see this, this again, this, this spewing out of, of, of vengeance from Ahmadinejad against Israel, If that weren't enough, you see this alignment of Syria and Russia, all a part of biblical prophecy. And then a a, a very undercovered kind of notice about a Russian sub being in the Gulf of Mexico. How does that not get national attention? It's an amazing world we live in, isn't it? But he goes on to say, not only the threat of Iran, we expect a modern day Moses to arise and reassure us. And he's a little bit tongue-in-cheek on this. He says, fear not and see the salvation of the Lord. We are ready for a repeat performance, this time in the Persian Gulf, in which God fights for us and we remain still. While it is convenient to believe in miracles and to be led blindly by others to a destination that is not our own choosing, Judaism demands that we rely on ourselves, accept responsibility, and act autonomously. And here's how he closes. Our lives are a series of challenges that must be overcome without divine intervention. You know, when you kill the miraculous in your life, either because of a lack of faith or because of reason, you fail to see what God does. Remember, in his own hometown, Jesus didn't do mighty miracles, the Bible says, because of their unbelief. And yet, in, in, in neighboring towns, he was working miracles right and left. It all was dependent upon what do you believe God can do in your life. 
And you see, you can have this intellectual kind of faith that says, I know God can do anything. I believe it right here in my head. But you've got to have more than that. You can believe it emotionally. You can have an emotional kind of faith, and you can get all worked up and excited. But until it's volitional, until it's acting out in your life, it's not real faith, is it? So our, our lives need to be shaped by faith itself. And I'm going to show you how this whole idea of coveting, when you turn away from coveting, you can turn to faith. Let me give you some of my thoughts. Here's the first one. I want you to think about the inward nature of man. What's really on the inside of you? What if we could, on this screen, show what you're thinking for the last seven days? Anybody be comfortable with that? Nobody would be comfortable with that. Well, God is watching that monitor. And sometimes we don't seem to care that God watches that monitor. We're just concerned about what other people are seeing in us. But what if we really began to deal with the inner man? I've discovered there's this law of dissatisfaction. It goes like this. I want what I don't have. I want what I can't have. I want what doesn't satisfy. I want what you have. I don't like what I get when I, when I get it. I just, that's it. I remember when I bought my first new car. I, every other car was used. I bought my first new car. It smelled like a new car. Remember the new car smell? Lasts like a week. Then my kids are eating French fries and they're stuffed down in the seat and now my car smells like French fries and not like a new car. New wears off easy, doesn't it? You see, when you deal with the inner man, there's two ways you can approach it. One is by rules. If you look at the Ten Commandments as a set of rules, you miss the point. It's only to point out what's wrong so that you move in the direction of God himself. You see, so if we operate by rules, we have this negative kind of thing, what we can't do. Well, you can't do that. I can't covet. Oh, but I can love God, and I can have God provide my needs. See, if I work in this negative, then I operate by religion. And you've heard me say, I hate religion. I love saying that to people when they know I'm a pastor. They look at me, well, how can you hate religion? I hate religion. Because religion is all about man trying to please God. Religion is all about everybody looking into your life, trying to see where you measure up instead of operating in the life and the Spirit of God. When I operate by rules, I'm never satisfied. You know why? Because I never can keep all the rules. And about the time I, I keep a couple of rules, somebody ups the ante and got, brings in a whole new set of rules. And I go, what am I going to do with those rules? You know, it's kind of like when someone says, well, I keep the Ten Commandments. No, you don't. Nobody ever kept all the Ten Commandments except Jesus. By the time you discover them, you've already broken two or three. Or amen? You go, oh, that was in there? I didn't know that was in there. You mean I can't? You mean I can't sleep with my girlfriend? Well, you can, but it's not what God says you can do. What do you think God really cares? I mean, these are conversations I, do you think God really cares? I mean, you know I love her. You know I really love her. Well, then marry her. Well, we're not quite ready. Well, how long have you been dating? Oh, five years. <laughs> Maybe it's time to just kind of think, we got to do something here. You see, it never satisfies, and it leads to bondage. However, if you operate in the life, then life becomes positive, and instead of religion, you have relationships. See, it's, it's good to have a relationship with God. 
It's bad to have this rule kind of thing going on with God because then you always think God's out to squash you. No, God's for you. God loves you. God loves you the way you are. He loved you. The, in Romans 5, it says, If God loved us while we were still enemies, how much more does God love us now that we're His children? God loved us both ways. You may not be lovable. God doesn't care. He still loves you. See, that's the beauty of being God. He, he can overlook that and just embrace us. And little by little, He shapes us and, and helps us to understand how we can walk in a way that is, is really more life-giving. It satisfies when you live your life that way with God. And it get, brings freedom. You get freedom to hear from God. Do you know when I'm walking in relationship with God, I can hear God? And when I'm not, God seems a little bit distant from me. God, are you, are you out there? But when I walk in the presence of God, I know He's there. You see, secondly, there is this drive in all of us for significance. Everybody wants to be significant. Everybody wants to be noticed. Everybody wants to be, you know, whether you admit it or not, you want to have some level of importance. You want people to say, hey, I know who you are and, and I recognize you are a good job. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But success is not measured by what I have done. It's not. Not in the kingdom of God. It is in the world and they say, well, you did this and this and this and they got these accolade after accolade on top of it. That's not where it is. You see, that at the core of coveting is this feeling of insignificance. If I don't have that, I'm not significant. A few weeks ago, we were at a meeting where the um, gold medalist for snowboarding was there, and she was up there talking, and, and she made this statement. She said, I basically trained for four years for 30-second performance. I kind of put it in perspective. In 30 seconds, she finds out, will she be significant? In one of the summer games, I, I watched a race where the girl from Russia came in second, and she was mad. She probably thought in that moment, if only I wouldn't have eaten those Doritos. <laughs> I could have had, I mean, I lost by that much, by that much. But you see, significance can't be found there. The core of, of this coveting is this feeling of insignificance and not understanding who we are in Jesus Christ. You see, when we covet, we bypass God and we say, let me take care of it, God. But you see, the air, when you walk with God, the air is pregnant with the atmosphere of the Spirit of God. Always ready to give birth to new life in your life. And when you walk in the presence and the power of God, there's always this sense that God is getting ready to do something exciting in my life. I don't know what it is. I get up in the morning, God, I can't wait for today. I don't know what you're going to do, but it's going to be exciting. When I get around people that are trying to suck the faith out of me and trying to, trying to take me down, you know what I do? I run. I've got to get away from them because you know what? I'll tell you what, I, I can get drained pretty fast in my life when people try pulling the, all the life out of me. Well, that's not going to happen. You know, that's really difficult and, you know, all of that. And, I, you know, and I'm just going, oh, my gosh. You see, you have to stay in the atmosphere of God. And it's pregnant with the Spirit of God. An atmosphere of power and authority surrounded Jesus. I, I'm going to tell you a story. You, you ever hear the story of the rich young ruler? Here's this guy who comes to Jesus. It's in Mark chapter 10. 
And the Bible says this, he, he came running to Jesus. Now remember, the religious people were mad at Jesus, right? Religious people are always mad at Jesus because he was such a radical and he didn't conform to all the rules. I was at a wedding last, uh, last night, doing a wedding, and, and there was a couple of ladies there, and one of them said, uh, well, you know, and they were from down south, you know, you know, Jesus didn't drink wine and he didn't dance. And I said, well, he made wine. I don't know about if he danced or not, but, you know, and there's just a little bit of antagonism in me, you know? I don't know if you knew that about me. And I just started talking to her, and I said, you know, I think he made wine, and it was the best wine. It was probably high percentage of alcohol. <laughs> she said, it was grape juice. She pointed her finger at me. She said, it was grape juice. And, I, and she had a great spirit about her. She really did. And, and uh, when I snuck over and poured some uh, um, vodka in her Coke, I... I the last I saw, she was dancing on the table, having a great time. I hope you know I'm kidding, right? Some of us going to go out and say, you know what our pastor did? He spiked the lady from the South Coca-Cola. Listen to what it says, Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Now he was going out on the road. One came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why did he run to Jesus? It was the atmosphere of the presence of God. When God begins to move, when you begin to feel the presence of God, don't, don't fight your emotions. God gave you emotions. When you feel the presence of God, you know, you want to respond to that. And it says that he came running and Jesus looked at him and it says he loved him. This guy was rich. He was respected. But he was lost. Jesus looked and said that he loved him. He said, one thing you lack, go your way. Give all that you have to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Come, take up your cross and follow me. But he was sad, and at this word he went away sorrowful, for he had many great possessions. I don't know about you, but the first time I ever read that, I thought that seems like a little bit too much to ask. Why would you do that? I mean, who would come to Jesus? Okay, what if I said this? Anybody wants to come to Jesus today, sell everything you have, come up here, and then you can believe in Christ. Well, who's coming? Why did he do that? Because he pinpointed in the heart of the heart of the issue in this man. And it was, there was greed in his heart. And the greed was going to keep him from the kingdom of God. Jesus looked around his disciples. He said this, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. He doesn't say impossible. He said it's hard. And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, well, who then can be saved? Jesus looked and said, with men it is impossible. That was the point of the story. Salvation is not about you and how worthy you are or how significant you are. It is about God working in you. With God is impossible, but not with, with, with God. With, for with God, all things are possible. I don't think he meant that, do you? I think he just meant to say, a lot of things are possible. What did he say? 
All. Do you believe that or not believe that? I kind of believe it intellectually, emotionally, and sometimes I believe it volitionally. Is, is that honest? I mean, let's be honest. I believe all things are possible. Why isn't God doing those all things I'm believing Him for? Because maybe either it's not His will or my level of faith hasn't risen up to the right place. Hey, last week we, uh, we had our service outside. Thank you for being here at 100 degree weather. Those of you who were here, um, some of you chickened out on us and said it's too hot. I'm going home, sitting in the pool. God bless you. But we had some baptisms. We had some people come to faith in Christ. We had about 25 people come to faith in Christ. We had, I don't know, 25 or 30 baptisms. And we captured some of the baptisms on film. We're going to show you some of the fun we had. We baptized in a horse trough. All right? Now, how, how many people can say, I was baptized in a horse trough, right? Except unless you went to the gypsy church. So let's watch the screen, see a few baptisms as we go through their service. The worst thing that can happen... Some of you are wondering if their heads are going to get into heaven because it was hard to get everybody down all the way. Yes, they will be fine, trust me. You try to baptize in 18 inches of water, you know, it's, uh, it's a miracle. But it was such a, you know, just to watch your faces right now, the response to see this excitement of, of professing faith in Jesus Christ. You should do that every day. Go out everywhere you go and let me tell you about Jesus and what new life in Christ means. It's a powerful, transformational dimension of living out Jesus in your life. That's what God wants. You see, when we walk with Him, we have this divine access to God. Listen carefully. When you pursue God, you will intuitively, spiritually, move from opportunity to opportunity, seeking out the mind of God. Weaving a divine pattern of God's presence in your life. Life will not be predictable or boring. You see, if life is predictable and boring, you have to take up the faith level a little bit. You'll find divine access to create a vision and a flexibility to react Recover and keep moving forward in a journey that will eventually lead you to the throne of the living God. Divine access means that your kingdom, the kingdom of God, will become your obsession. Seeing His kingdom come will be your prayer. To introduce the values of the King will be your purpose in life. But with divine access comes responsibility as well. Jesus told his disciples, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them it has not been granted. God gave you a responsibility and a stewardship of the mysteries of God. We often think of stewardship about money. You have a bigger responsibility than money stewardship. It is the mysteries of God. If you handle them right, all the other things will fall in place. Listen to this word from Bill Johnson. He said, by keeping revelation, speaking of those who do not have insight into the mysteries of God, by keeping revelation from those without hunger. If you don't hunger for the mysteries of God, don't worry. God will keep you from the mysteries. God protects them from certain failure to carry out the responsibility. 
it would lay on them. Yet He doesn't conceal them for us. He conceals for us. You see, He keeps mysteries from those who have no hunger. And sometimes they look around and go, well, I don't know what's the big deal. No, God has kept that mystery from you. There is a blindness that God puts on even His people because they fail to take the responsibility and to move in the direction of the mysteries of God. And they go through this machine-like Christianity where they just want a sermon, they just want a song, and they want to live out a pretty good life and go to heaven when they die. And if that is the goal, God will accommodate you. He's happy to do that. But you miss out on all the good stuff. You miss out on the mysteries of God. You miss out on seeing what God can do and will do and wants to do. There's a guy named Charlie Parker. He was a jazz saxophonist in the 1930s. He was an overnight phenomena. But he had a problem. As good as he was, the problem was he felt music he could not play. He lacked the ability as a musician to carry out what he heard in his head and what he knew could, could, he could do. After months of struggling, he finally succeeded. He found a new way to draw melody lines from the chords of other band members. He said, when I discovered that, it was like life came to me. And he said, I could finally play the things I was hearing. Deep down inside of all of us, you're hearing some things from God. Wouldn't you like to see those played out in your life? That divine frustration of, I know God created me for something more than this. I know that I have a capacity to, to see God and know God and see God's miracles, but God, I, there's just a barricade here. Ask God for the release in your heart. Say, God, I want the mysteries. I'll be a good steward of the mysteries of God. You see, if church is only about how many are there and how much they gave and what big program we did, we miss everything. We are a spiritual people with a physical body created for eternity shaped in the image of the invisible God, destined to sit on the throne with Christ and reign and rule with Him. Revelation tells us we are kings and priests of our King. Revelation 1.6 We were made for more than just church. We were made for a divine destiny. We were made to go into a world and heal a nation. And if ever there was a nation that needed to be healed, it is our nation. We look around the world and see how we can fix some other nation. Have you looked at America lately? It's time to unleash the Spirit of God, time to unleash the people of God on this nation and transform in and get revival moving in our land. Amen? Yeah. Deep down inside, there is a song that we want to sing. I want to encourage you to sing that song. Let me give you a few life applications. Here's first. Identify the areas in your life that you are not content. That probably is indicative of coveting. And just give it to God. And then embrace the supernatural door instead of that reasonable, physical, 
unexplainable door of life and say, God, I'm going through that door. I want you to open a door that no man can shut. Open that door, God, and let me walk through and let me walk into your presence and into your power. Let's stand together as we pray. God, we know that there's something in our head that says striving for more will bring an increase. Yet just the opposite is true, God. Because we're working against the laws of the kingdom. We know, God, that you tolerate some things for a season. You allow us to go off and chase after other gods, which is spiritual immorality. We shift our values from the Lord to this world, but what God, what you want from us is just raw honesty and obedience and shift our pursuit from the temporal to the eternal. God, we ask you to work right here. God, there are, there are undoubtedly people here today who need, need to be in your presence and your power in a new and a fresh way. They hear inside a music playing. They, they know there's a birthing of revival in their system, God, but they don't know what to do with it. God, just we pray we can just pull back all, all the layers that are keeping us from you, God, and walk in faithfulness and truth. And God, I pray that some will come here and maybe just come to this cross and, and just say, God, I want to stand at this cross and give you my life. And maybe you want to put a prayer request in this box and let us pray for you. Or some of you need to find Christ. You've been living out this Christian kind of ethic, but not a powerful, living relationship with the Lord. Would you come to Him and let Him embrace you? There's something very powerful about just responding to God. Even if all you do is come to the front of this auditorium and just stand. Say, God, with hands outstretched, here I am, God. Fall on me. Fall on me, Spirit of God. As we worship together, we ask you to come and respond and, and, and do what God wants you to do.